Listener Production. Hey, Tom Tilly and Jan Fran with you for The Briefing. And in this episode, part two of our exploration of what Indigenous Australians think about the voice to Parliament. Yeah, so in part one, we spoke to an Indigenous lawyer, Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts, from Bundjalung Country, that's on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And at this stage, she's not supporting the voice. I started forming the position that we've always had a voice, but we've been silenced. As much as it's really great and it might feel really good, you know, that sense of, yes, we finally have a moment. We don't need any more moments as First Nations people. We need actual movements that are going to fulfil and allow our communities to flourish and be self-determined. So that was an argument against The Voice. In today's episode, we're going to hear from Bridget Karma. She's an Indigenous woman who's working on the Yes campaign. We'll hear why she thinks it's the right way forward. The government has a relationship with First Nations peoples and it will guarantee us a seat at the table so that our voices are listened to. That is our briefing episode. Right after the Yes campaign was launched last night in Adelaide, Um, You'll hear that in the second half. In the first half, here are the big news headlines of the day. It's Friday the 24th of February. Well, we're going to start with a pretty grim anniversary, I'm sad to say. It's been one year since the start of the war in Ukraine. Um, In commemoration, the federal government's announcing an extra $33 million for military drones. That contribution now brings Australia's total contribution of military support to $510 million dollars. Um, which the Ukrainian ambassador says has been very crucial to the war effort. And this is what is saving lives, what is uh, is helping uh, Ukraine win. But it's it's more than that. What's important in military aid is that it's systematic, it's substantive and it's consistent. That was Vasil Miroshnishenko on 7.30 there. Can't believe we're here one year on from the start of this war that Vladimir Putin thought would take three days. Yeah, certainly longer than three days. And some mm. yeah, pretty grim statistics over the last year. 100,000 soldiers killed or wounded on each side. So that's a total of 200,000. Um, there's also 8,000 non-combatants that have been killed and another 13,000 injured. And that's not even counting the 14 million people mm. that have been displaced both internally and who've left Ukraine as well. And finally, some closure for the family of a Sydney man who was killed back in 1988. So Scott White has pleaded guilty to the manslaughter, but not murder, of Scott Johnson, confessing that he punched Johnson before he fell off a cliff. I'll always hope that someday he'll find it in his heart um, to maybe tell us a little bit more about why he was there with my brother and uh, what his intention was. So that's Scott Johnson's brother, Steve, speaking to the ABC. Um, He's been fighting for all of those decades to find justice for his brother. Um, The police at the time told him it was suicide, and they maintained that position for many, many years. But Steve Johnson knew otherwise because his brother's body was found at the base of cliffs below what was known to be a gay beat. Yeah, it's been a very drawn-out and I can only imagine quite heartbreaking story for the family. Um, There's been three inquests into Scott Johnson's death. They all came to a different conclusion. But this is actually the second time that Scott White has confessed. So last year, he he sort of took his legal team by surprise. This was during a pretrial hearing by declaring that he was guilty. That was then overturned on appeal. So the family would have thought that they found closure Mm. then. Not Mm. so. 
hopefully this is the closure that they're seeking now. And we now know how the cyber criminals broke into Medibank, pulling off the biggest ever cyber security heist in our history. So the health insurer says Russian criminals access the data of 9.7 million customers by stealing usernames and passwords from a third-party IT company. And more business news. The boss of Qantas, Alan Joyce, has said that airfares, mm, they're not going to get any cheaper. And this was right after he announced that Qantas had made a $1.4 billion profit over the last six months. Yeah, they did lose $7 billion during the pandemic, so it is good news they're back in the black. But yeah, domestic fares are 20% above pre-pandemic levels and are going to stay that way. Yeah, just on Qantas, they also claimed the most money for JobKeeper uh, during the pandemic, $856 million over a period of two or so years, and uh, not planning to give that back either. There's an update on the Raoul Dahl story. Uh, European publishers are refusing to edit his books. Um, the Dutch publisher says the stories will lose all their power if the language is watered down and that his humour is second to none. And the French publisher says the edits only concern the UK and the US. And this point kind of encapsulates what I've been thinking about it. Like, the real power of Raoul Dahl's books is the kind of hyperbole that he sort of uses these ridiculous and harsh words like fat and lazy in a children's book. And it, it is what makes them funny. Luckily, I'm slightly too old for those books right now and my kid is slightly too young for those books right now. <laughs> so I'm just going to not care about any of this. I just want to be left alone. <laughs> And the Yes campaign for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament officially launched in Adelaide last night. It's about taking this campaign for recognition through a voice out of the bubble and back down to where this campaign belongs, which is with the people of Australia. That's Dean Park and the lead campaigner. So the announcement came with a $5 million donation from the Paul Ramsey Foundation to kick off the fundraising efforts. Yep, and speaking of fundraising efforts and all they're going towards, we're going to be speaking to someone from the Yes campaign. Um, in fact, someone working on it. That's coming up. Bridget Karmer will be voting yes in the referendum on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. She's actually working on the campaign to make it happen. Bridget is the co-chair of the Uluru Youth Dialogue. Um, she's also a law graduate and she's a Wiradjuri and Pacifica Fijian woman. She joins us now. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us about the work you're doing with the Uluru Youth Dialogue. What is that? Yeah, so in 2019, Alira Davis and I were attending one of the community meetings that continued happening after the issuing of the statement. And we realised that there was an opportunity there for young people to really become actively involved in firstly learning about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and what it calls for, and then equipping them with enough information, confidence and skills to then actually go back into their own communities and have a yarn with their communities, their families about what this is particularly around the voice and what it can mean for our people. Uh, but since then, we've continued to uh, have the conversations with people on the ground, everyday Australians. So we are out there on the weekends, you know, at community events and festivals, just talking to people about what this is, what the voice is and the upcoming referendum. 
So Bridget, why do you support The Voice? Firstly, I believe in the mandate of the Uluru Statement because of the robust process of consultation that happened in 2016 and 17. But The Voice in particular, I can see that it is a practical and pragmatic way for First Nations peoples to have a seat at the table and to have a say over the laws and policies that affect our lives. Uh, We know that what is happening right now isn't working for us as First Nations peoples, and I also think it's failing us as a nation. The reason that it's failing is because we're not at the table, uh, we're not able to have a say, and even though we know what works for us in our own communities, our voices aren't listened to. And so the voice itself is a structural reform. It will change the way in which the government has a relationship with First Nations peoples and it will guarantee us a seat at the table so that our voices are listened to. So the argument from Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts, who um, is an Indigenous lawyer as well, she's in the no camp, is that the voice could still be ignored because it's just purely advisory. It doesn't have any legislative power. What do you make of that argument? Does that worry you too, that the voice, you know, may speak, but it may not have any impact? Yeah, I think it's always a concern for our mob that, you know, what has been happening since we first engaged with white Australia is that our voices will continue to be silenced. The fact that we've been through decades of that is always going to be something we're concerned about moving into the future. But what we have now is only hand-selected people speaking on behalf of us. We know that we have the solutions on the ground and there's little pockets of that happening where solutions led by community are working, but there's also a huge amount of silencing of our people. What The Voice will do is provide surety that we as First Nations peoples through our elected representatives will and must be heard by the government. It won't guarantee us that they have to listen and implement those recommendations. But what it will do is provide some accountability there because there will have to be some response to the advice that is provided by The Voice And the fact that we've had to go through a referendum process to actually establish that voice means that it has the power of the Australian people behind it. If the voice is successful, then it means that the Australian people believe in this voice and see it as a legitimate institutional body that is set up to allow First Nations peoples to have a say and have um, some political power over our own affairs to inform those policies. And if the government doesn't listen to that, there will be some political backlash mm. there as well. So there is political power in this. Uh, to say that it there's no genuine power that comes from the voice, I think, is a misrepresentation of it. It is absolutely more than we've got now. The voice is not the end goal by any means, but it is the next pragmatic, practical step to take to allow us to have some power over our own affairs. Bridget, in the last few weeks and months, I think we've heard from a growing chorus of Indigenous Australians who oppose the voice. And sometimes it can feel like those voices are really loud. Now, Mm. somebody like uh, Anthony Albanese will say, well, no, they're fringe voices or they're radicals. They're not the majority of Indigenous Australians. What do some of the polling say about the split amongst Indigenous people? And, And how many people do you reckon are in the no camp like Vanessa? Yeah, I mean, of course, not every single First Nations person will agree with any proposal. We're just like everybody else, you know, we're not a homogenous group. 
but it is clear that the support for the voice is an overwhelming portion of the First Nations community. We know that we've seen recent polling come out and it shows that 80% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples do support the voice. And we have heard over the last few months a lot from the voices of the few First Nations peoples who are in the no camp, and that is sitting at around 10% uh, based on the polling. But I just want to say that, you know, these numbers are pretty consistent with the regional dialogues and the Uluru Convention outcomes. There was over 250 First Nations delegates that were sent to Uluru to finalise what we as First Nations people see as meaningful constitutional change. Out of those 250, seven people actually walked out of the Uluru Convention um, and they opposed, you know, constitutional change and recognition generally and said that they don't agree with the voice. And I think that is representative of what democracy is. You know, not everybody thinks the same way. But at the end of the day, there was an overwhelming consensus and 97% of those 250 delegates said that the voice is the next step forward um, Mm. towards a better future. And so that's where my heart sits and that's the mandate that I stand strong in. Um, I wasn't a part of that consultation process. I am a young person and there were other young people as part of that consultation process, but I know that it was a robust process and so that's why I do stand strong in it and it's something that I really believe in. In addition to I think that it is a structural reform that will actually make real changes in the lives of people on the ground in communities And those that were consulted were grassroots community people. They were people that make up our community, such as elders, traditional owners, um, young people, aunties, mums, cousins, you know, everybody was there. Um, Mm. It was a very inclusive process. The fact that some people don't agree with it, I think, makes it a more robust process and they absolutely have the right to not agree with it. Mm. And we've always been able to sit down and have those yarns in community, that's just how we work. Uh, if we don't agree to something, we, we do sit down and have a yarn about it. And at the end of the day, we came out with that consensus. So um, that's what I think as a young person, I'll continue to move forward in that call for action for a voice. Do you think that's part of the challenge that so much of this rests on something that happened in 2017, which is now five years ago? And I, yeah. I remember when that statement from the heart was was read out, it, it did feel like a really special moment uh, of rare unity. Almost everyone, as you said, at that conference at Uluru um, signed up to this statement. And as you've said, also that that was the culmination of all of these regional dialogues that represented people mm. from all around Australia. But a lot of people either weren't across the detail at the time or aren't across it now. And it becomes very complex when you're trying to explain how a meeting in 2017 came together and what it really meant when we've got to vote on something now in 2023. How much of that is a key challenge here? It's a big challenge and that's why the Uluru Dialogue work is so important. Um, We focus on those meaningful conversations out in the community, but, you know, our reach only goes so far. So we are relying on the rest of Australia to really inform themselves around this. You know, we have so many resources on our website, for example, but there is a lot of information out there in the public domain, whether it's, you know, it's hard because that has to be filtered down and, and reach everyday Australians. And we are relying on that to some extent for Australians to 
take the initiative to get around this proposal and the history of where it's come from. Because what we find is, you know, once we have those conversations and explain that to everyday Australians, they say straight back to us, oh, well, of course, yeah, that makes sense. Let's just get it done. And there is that willingness there to just move forward so that we can, you know, as a nation continue to move forward. But it does rely on uh, Australians having that knowledge there. So we'll continue to do that work, uh, but we're also encouraging Australians to get across it and then have the conversations with their own communities and their own families and networks. Our goal is that, you know, Australians will be as best informed as they can be when it's time to go to referendum. That's always been our goal. There's a huge amount of work to be done around the education side of things. But as I said, you know, we'll just keep chipping away at that and, and really encourage all Australians to walk with us and feel some sense of responsibility that their vote counts, but it's also them shaping where Australia will head into the future. And we'd really encourage them to um, have those conversations with people in their own lives as well. That was Bridget Karma, who's co-chair of the Uluru Youth Dialogue. She's also a law graduate from Wiradjuri country. I think it's important to bear in mind that this is a process that started years ago with the coming together of uh, Indigenous leaders from right around Australia. And it's sort of the culmination of a very long consultation with community, which sometimes can go missing in all of the talk in and around The Voice. Um, But there's been a real sort of process to get us to where we are now that I think should sort of be at the forefront of when we talk about this issue. I think that's right. But the challenge is it just explaining that to everyday Australians and People go about their busy lives and they make these decisions kind of quickly and often on, on gut instincts. So I worry that it's there's too much explaining of the backstory to do here about, you know, that meeting in that moment at, at Uluru and that they won't be able to explain that to everyone in enough detail to get their heads around it. Well, they've got a few months to work out the best way how, I reckon. And the Yes campaign is probably getting started in terms of mm. the education campaign that they want to put out there for the rest of the country. So they've got their work cut out for them, but they're up for it. Yeah. What I'll be interested to see is, is I guess, how much of that communication focuses on what happened in 2017 in terms of the Uluru Statement or how much of mm. it just explains the value of it right here, right now. And if you want to know more about the Uluru Statement and how it all came together, uh, we are putting another episode in your feed. It'll be up next after this one. And it's a great interview with an Indigenous man called Thomas Mayer, uh, who was actually there and can explain all the conversations that happened in the lead up to the meeting at Uluru and uh, what happened at that meeting, which produced the statement. So it helps us just understand what the true significance of that statement really was. All right, thank you so much for listening to The Briefing this week. A big thank you to the hardworking briefing team, executive producer Dan Mullins, producers Eleanor Harris and Dengate, Nicole Castles, Helen Smith, social media team Sarah Boll and Poppy Manzi, Matt Kuzkari, our editor, and congratulations to Helen Smith. Uh, Helen has won a very prestigious journalism uh, award at UTS, the Dame Mary Gilmore Award for being top of her master's class. Listener.